I was waiting for it. If you have your Bibles, please grab them and turn with me to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 1 in just a moment. We have been in the book of Galatians for about nine weeks, really since the beginning of, or the middle of January. And now we are going to today finish up the book of Galatians. And it's been an amazing journey, and I'm really excited uh, for us to dive into this last teaching on the book of Galatians. Just to let you know, next week, of course, is going to be Easter, so it's going to be a special service. Then, for the two weeks after Easter, we are going to do a special mini-series, and it's going to be called Heaven and Hell. And we're really going to be looking at what does the Bible teach about heaven What does the Bible teach about hell? What does the Bible teach about eternal life? And so we really believe uh, that's going to be a powerful and and, an impactful series. And then after that two-week series, we're going to dive in and begin a study of the book of Ephesians. And so we're really excited about the next few weeks and pumped about that. So you guys excited about this? This is going to be a good thing? Yeah, awesome. Okay, cool. There we go. All right. So before we dive into Galatians, I do want to ask you a question. Have you ever gone into a moment, have you ever gone into a space and just felt that there was something different about it? And what I mean by that is you felt like welcomed, you felt loved, you felt cared for, and you felt like, man, somebody is really glad that I'm here. Maybe when, when I said that, you thought about a restaurant that just does excellent customer service. When you walk in, uh, they value you. Uh, Maybe you're thinking about Chick-fil-A. Every time you ask for a sauce, they're like, my pleasure, right? (laughs) Maybe you're thinking about a home that you went to. I know for myself personally, um, shout out to my mother-in-law. Her name is Carrie, and she does such an amazing job creating hospitality at her home. If you walk into the Wilkins house, you are going to get fed, you're going to get loved, you're going to get cared for, you're going to walk away and feel like a million bucks, So do you guys know what I'm talking about? That there's places where there's this culture where people welcome you and where people love you and care for you. So the title today is The Gospel Creates a Culture. The Gospel Creates a Culture. So in the book of Galatians, what we have been studying is that the most important thing, the greatest foundation that we could lay our lives upon is the gospel. And Paul has been over and over again reiterating that we have to get the gospel right. That we have to understand that we cannot earn God's approval. We cannot earn righteousness before God that we could only do it because of our faith and because of our trust in Jesus. So that's really been the first four chapters of Galatians. But then Paul kind of uh, shifts gears a little bit in the last two chapters, and he starts talking about what does that look practically in our lives. And so in, in the fifth chapter, and Pastor David did an awesome job talking about this last week, he really talked about the fact that what happens when the gospel starts to change things in the life of an individual. He talked about the fact that the Holy Spirit wants to bring about the fruit of the Spirit. You guys remember love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's the fruit of the Spirit. And so that's what happens. The gospel starts to change the hearts of individuals. But what today we're going to look at is this. What happens when the gospel starts to change an entire church community? 
And we start to see that it's not just individuals that get changed, but actually entire communities that can change when the gospel starts to move and when the gospel starts to bear fruit. The gospel creates a culture. And so we're going to look at four elements of the type of culture that the gospel creates. And as we do, here's what I want you to think about. First off, I want to encourage us. Because I believe as I look at our church that we have a healthy culture. I believe that as I see our people and as I see our church, we're a healthy church. And so when I'm up here talking about these four things, I don't think that any of us should be like, man, we are doing a horrible job as a church. We're healthy. But I also want us to use our imaginations and I want us to ask the question, God, what is it that you may want to do in our church? How may you want to continue to move? It's not by accident that God has led us to be in the book of Galatians. And as we're in the book of Galatians, God, I believe, wants to begin to even more create a gospel-centered culture within our church. And so we're going to look at four areas of what that looks like. So hopefully by now you've made it to Galatians chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 1. And here we go. It says this, Galatians 6, 1, brothers and sisters... If someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you may also be tempted. Now, the first thing that we see is that Paul describes kind of an awkward situation, but it is also a very common situation. And that is that you and I, when we are in relationships with people who are Christians, we are going to sin against each other. We are going to hurt each other. Now, now a lot of times I think that people, they have this expectation that churches are going to be perfect, that people are going to be perfect, and they are shocked. I'm shocked when I find that Christians uh, sometimes hurt each other. But, But what Paul is saying is you should expect it. There are going to be times when we sin against each other. And Paul gives us two instructions. When this happens, first off, we should have a heart to restore each other with a spirit of gentleness. And secondly, that we should watch ourselves. And we should recognize we are not better than that. And we are just as prone to sin and to mess up as anyone else. And so the first thing that I want you to write down, the first element of the culture that the gospel creates is the gospel creates a culture of grace. The gospel creates a culture of grace. A few weeks ago, uh, when Dr. Sean McDowell was here, he talked about cancel culture. Cancel culture is kind of the opposite of a culture of grace. Uh, The world around us has a cancel culture. What does that mean? That means People have a tendency to be judgmental. And not just like people out there. People in here sometimes have that tendency. We all can have that tendency. People have a tendency to have a critical spirit. People have a tendency, and we could have a tendency to look at each other and to kind of almost be like looking for where the sin is. We're sniffing around trying to find some sin. We could even have a heart of self-righteousness that when someone messes up, we're almost kind of happy about it because it makes us feel better about ourselves. And and we've been in churches like that. We've been in 
Maybe families like that or relationships like that. It's a critical culture. But that's not what God is trying to do in our church. That's not what God is trying to do in his church. He wants a culture of grace. Now, when people talk about a culture of grace, one of the criticisms that come is that people start to say, okay, if you have a culture of grace, that means you're soft on sin. That means you don't care about the word of God. You don't take this thing as seriously as I do. And here's what I want to say. Having a culture of grace doesn't mean that we don't take sin seriously. Right? Paul actually said, restore the person. If you don't, it, it, you don't need to restore if there wasn't something wrong. Paul said, watch yourself. Why do we have to watch ourselves if we're not taking sin seriously? But a culture of grace just means sin isn't the only thing we take seriously. See, we also take our own weakness seriously. See, see, when you have a self-righteous spirit, it's easy for you to think, okay, I must be God's gift to our church, and therefore, everyone else has a problem. Of course I'm critical. But, but if I realize, man, I, I'm, I'm, fa- I'm a failure, I'm fallen, I need God's grace. I need his mercy. I mess up all the time and I have to rely on his mercies that are new every morning. If I have that heart and that understanding, it's going to be really easy for me to give grace to other people. We also have to have a culture that takes the gospel seriously. When we take the gospel seriously, that makes a culture of grace. Because that says all of us are on the same ground. We all need a savior. And when we have that savior, then God can start to change our lives. God can start to restore. God can start to transform. And if we've seen God's power work, we get excited to see his power work in other people as well. Now, I have to give honor to to Pastor Dave here because I think that Pastor Dave, our senior pastor, really embodies a culture of grace. Um, I've worked for him for about eight and a half years now. And how many know when you work for someone for eight and a half years, like, There's going to be some times when you mess up. And I can think of several times when I have come to him and I've said, listen, Pastor Dave, like here was something I did wrong or here was a time where I dropped the ball. And every time his heart to me has been, I believe in you. I want to see you continue to move forward. Let's let's move past this and let's go on together. I really believe that we do have a, a senior pastor who embodies that culture of grace. And we could be thankful for that. Yeah, let's thank God for that. So, so here's, my, here's my question to you. How do you think about other people? How do you talk about other people? How do you talk to other people? Maybe for the parents, step-parents, grandparents in this room, how do you think and talk to your kids? For all of us, our coworkers, our fellow church members, those who go to our school, do we have a heart of grace or do we have a heart of criticism? The gospel creates a culture of grace. Now let's keep reading. Look with me at verse two. It says this, carry each other's burdens and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. For each one 
should carry their own load. Now, if you're noticing here, it looked like the Apostle Paul actually kind of contradicted himself. In verse 2, he gives us a very famous verse, and he says each of us, or that we should bear each other's burdens. We should carry each other's burdens. But then in verse 5, he says that you should carry your own load. So what does this mean? We'll have on the screen a couple of definitions for you. This is the meaning of each of these Greek words. In verse 2, it says that a burden is a heavy weight or a stone that someone is required to carry for a long distance. So when we think about burden, what we really should think about is this is something that's unexpected that has come into my life or come into your life, and now you have to carry it. And what Paul is saying is we should not have to carry these burdens by ourselves. You know, each one of us has burdens. We have temptations that come into our life. We, we have health issues. We have family issues. We, we have trauma that happens and, and hardship that happens. We have unexpected death or unexpected family challenges. And when these things happen, what Paul is saying is you should not have to carry that burden by yourself. That each one of us should come alongside other people in our church community and say, man, I have a heart to help you. This weight that you're carrying, don't carry it by yourself. But then Paul also talks about that we should carry our own load. And a load uh, literally would mean like a ship's cargo, a soldier's knapsack, a pilgrim's backpack. This would be something that you are supposed to carry, that it's your job to carry. And now each one of us, we do have things that we are called by God to carry. God has put each, uh, in each of our hands specific situations and specific circumstances. One day, all of us will stand before God. And when we stand before God, we're not going to stand with other people. We're going to stand by ourselves. And God is going to ask us, what did you do with Jesus? What did you do with the gifts that I gave you? What did you do with the time and the resources that I trusted you with? And listen, when we stand before God, we're not going to be able to blame our, our pastor. We're not going to be able to blame our parents. We're not going to be able to blame the culture around us. God is going to say, you have to carry your own load. What did you do with that? And so this is what I want us to write down. I want us to write down this, that the gospel creates a culture of teamwork. The gospel creates a culture of teamwork. Now, when I think about a team, I think about the fact that they are individual members of that team. Well, when, when I played basketball in high school, my coach said, Brian, you're really tall. You have some specific jobs that you're supposed to do. You're supposed to rebound. You're supposed to block shots. I was like, coach, can I shoot threes? He's like, that's not your job. I was like, coach, can I dribble? He's like, please do not dribble. That's not your job. Know your role. You're on the team to do these specific things. But then also, the team is individual people, but it's also a group. And together, we help each other achieve a goal. So I want you to think about two things when we think about the gospel creating a culture of teamwork. First off, I want you to understand our church is here for you. We are here for you. If you're walking through something, if you're suffering, if you're carrying a heavy burden, please don't carry it alone. If you walked in here with a weight on your shoulders, 
you may have to walk through life or you may have to walk through a season with a weight. But I want you to know that as you're walking through that season, there are people around you who are praying for you and who are saying you have a burden on your shoulders, but I would like to walk alongside of you and take some of that burden so it doesn't feel so heavy. We're here for you as a church. But here's the other thing that I want to tell you. As a church, we need you. We need you. The, the, the team is not complete if some of the players aren't participating. And I think sometimes it could be really tempting in a big church setting to look and to say, okay, like we're paying some people. They're the ones who are doing the ministry. Uh, as I walk in, I see people checking in my kids and I see people greeting me at the door and I see people in the cafe. So like, y'all are good. Y'all don't need me. And I just want to say, we need you. Like, we need you. We are all part of the team. And I would challenge us with this. If all of us in this room would say, I'm content with this amount of people getting saved. I'm content with this amount of people getting discipled. I'm content with no more marriages getting transformed. Uh, no more people getting sent out to fulfill the God-given calling. Like, I think we've done pretty good. Let's face it, things are going well. Like, we're good. If you would say that, we don't need you. We're good. But I believe that God has a heart to see thousands more people in our community get saved. Amen? And I believe there are people in our community that have marriages that need to be restored. I believe that there are hurting people that need to know the love of Jesus. I believe that there are people who are purposeless and they need to know the purpose that God has for them. And if that's the case, can I tell you, we need you. We need all of us to participate because the gospel creates a culture of teamwork. Okay, let's keep going. Check this out with me. Verse six, it says this, Galatians chapter six, verse six. Nevertheless, the one who receives instruction in the word should share all good things with their instructor. The one who receives instruction should share all good things. Now, if you felt like just now it got a little tense in the room, uh, this verse is about giving. You could say this verse is about tithing. And everybody always gets a little bit nervous when the pastor starts talking about tithing. So let me tell you a funny story. Uh, when I was about five or six years ago, I was, had been on staff here for a few years. I was teaching and leading in the harbor, our young adult ministry. And the leadership at the time was like, it's time to give Brian a chance to teach on a Wednesday night. And I heard it, and I was excited, and I was like, this is so cool. I'm going to get a chance to be up here and uh, teach our people on Wednesday night. And we were at that time in Wednesday night going through Galatians. Guess what the first verse they gave me in Galatians was? <laughs> Got up there, and I was like, what's up, guys? My name is Brian. Galatians 6.6, 6, everyone who is instructed should share all good things with the one who teaches. Let's just say, like, the first 20 minutes, it was cold and awkward, Okay. <laughs> Everyone was like, who is this guy? Like, what, like what, who wants to teach the, the topic on giving? Well, let's give it to the new guy over here. That's great. <laughs> so I'm going to take a couple moments, and I'm going to share about tithing with us. And the only goal that I have is I just want this to go better than it did five years ago, okay? I don't have a high bar. 
But, but I want you to know this because the Apostle Paul, he's talking, and in the context of Galatians, this is what's happening. He is explaining that there are pastors and there are leaders who are serving in the various churches in Galatia and in the various churches all around at that time. And he gives a principle to us, and the principle is this. If you are being ministered to spiritually, then you should provide physically for those who are ministering to you spiritually. And this is actually a principle that goes throughout the Bible, and I'm going to talk a little bit about it. And so uh, you can write this down. This is the third thing that happens when the gospel takes root is that the gospel creates a culture of generosity. It creates a culture of generosity. Now, when we talk about tithing, I think there are kind of two extremes that we can go to. The first extreme is that uh, we could, uh, pastors or teachers or communicators can manipulate you about your money. They could say things that uh, stir up your emotions or make you feel guilty or make you feel bad. They could say things that uh, tip the scales and benefit them. And so isn't it interesting sometimes that uh, people will say, God wants to bless you, but they're the ones flying the private jet. Right, so that's the one extreme. But then the other extreme is uh, pastors or leaders can be so afraid of offending or stepping on toes that they never talk about money. And what I want you to know is the Bible is actually very full of God's teaching on money. And so as a pastor and our pastoral team, we never want to manipulate, but we do want to recognize that God has some things to say about our money. And so I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't communicate those things. And so I don't want to live in fear. You want a pastor that loves you. You don't want a pastor that is afraid of you, okay? And so we're going to do a little teaching on tithing. And what is tithing? Tithing is uh, setting aside or committing 10% of your money to invest into the church or the place that is spiritually investing into you and investing into your family. Now, the tithe, it was actually instituted by God in the Old Testament. He created this people, the people of Israel. And when he did that, he instituted this principle of tithing. Now, I'm going to put up the reference for where it is on the screen. I'm not going to read it, but if you'd like to read it, you can see the purpose for tithe in Deuteronomy 14. But really, in these verses, you're going to see three things, that there's three biblical reasons for the tithe. The first is this that we want to enjoy and celebrate God with our family. That's one of the reasons that we tithe. In the Old Testament, uh, they would actually bring the raw goods that they were producing, the, the, the grain and, the, and the, uh, the, the, the animals that they were producing. And so that was the way that they tithed. And so some of that was actually set aside for festivals and feasts so that when the people of God gathered together, that they would actually celebrate God together as a community. And that same principle applies today. We need resources to create a place for us to worship and to serve together. How many people here are happy that they are sitting in an air-conditioned room right now? Come on, somebody. Listen, I, I said that at the 9 o'clock service, and they hadn't said amen to anything else. Revival broke out when I mentioned the AC. How many people are happy when you, when you go into the bathroom that you got toilet paper and running water? Like, we're happy about these things, right? Yes. 
We're so glad that we have a place for our kids, a place for our youth that's safe and where they can grow up and learn about God. Part of the goal is to celebrate God together. A couple, or last week, Pastor Dave came to our church and mentioned a specific need. Uh, that we have a playground, but the playground really does need to be upgraded. There's kind of mulch everywhere. It washes away during the rain. There's no shade at all. Uh, we want to create kind of a, a more astroturf area, and we want to put, put picnic tables and shade so it could be a place where the community and the church gathers. And, and he mentioned that that is going to be about $200,000, We've, we've created a fund, the, the Melbourne Expansion Fund, that people can give to. Well, we're not going to go into any more debt, but that is a need that we have. Now, just a funny story about this. Pastor Dave told this story last week about the playground. And um, normally, every single week, uh, my wife Katie takes our two boys to play out on the playground. And she told me, she's like, a bunch more people kind of came out after the service, and what they noticed was my son Malachi, he's uh, almost a year old, uh, he's sitting there, he's covered in mud, he's like eating mulch. People are like, we really need to give to this playground. Like, it was like, you know, like he became the poster child, right? Like, people are like, we got to give, we got to fix this. So anyways, that's one of the reasons. The second thing is to provide for those who minister spiritually, uh, the Levites, the tribe of Levi, they ministered to the entire people of Israel. And in the same way, there are pastors, uh, there are leaders, there are church staff who minister to us, and it provides for those. And then the third is to take care of the needy in the community. Uh, at the time in Israel, it was the foreigner, the orphan, the widow that was taken care of. Today, we use some of the tithe that comes in uh, to invest into uh, the different uh, compassion needs in our community, but also we use it for mission. The greatest need is to advance the gospel and to tell people here in our community and all around the world about the gospel of Jesus. Now listen, I know a lot of us here are incredibly generous. We have a generous church. And if you are already giving, then, then you don't need me to convince you because you know about the blessing of giving. But I do just want to take a moment and just share a few verses from Scripture to help you see if you're not giving, uh, what you're honestly missing out on by being a part of God's story. And so I'm going to put up first 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul writes this. He says, remember, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And this principle applies not just to money, but whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each one of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So, so this verse says, you should not give because I'm trying to manipulate you to give, but you should know the truth, and the truth is that in all areas of life, when you are generous, your world gets bigger and ironically, when you are stingy, when you try to conserve it all, your world gets smaller. Now, now we're not advocating here that you're unwise with your money, okay? I know, and my, my family feels as much as anybody that, man, you go to the grocery store, things cost more than they did. Katie and I are more and more having conversations about, like, man, do we need this? What, what can we do to cut back in these certain areas? But what we must realize is that when it comes to our generosity, when it comes to giving to uh, our community, to giving to the needy, and giving to our church, that, that God does something special when we are generous. 
Your world will get bigger the more generous you are. Watch it in your relationships. If you are generous with your words, watch your relationships get blessed. If you're generous with your time, watch God bless your time. And if you are generous with your money, I do believe God will bless your finances. And let me tell you about this. Look at Malachi chapter 3, verse 10. There's only one place in the entire Bible where God tells us to test him. And it's right here. Malachi 3.10, it says, Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. He's saying, test me, try me, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be enough room to store it. God says, I want you to test me. And I'll be honest, like when I read this, it's like, I would like the last two lines in my life. Like I could handle, like I'm like, God, I could handle so much blessing I can't store it anywhere, okay? Just try me, God, I'll do it. But, but what God says is, I want you to test me and trust me with your resources. And, and so here's a challenge for you. I believe that there are some people in here that God is speaking to that they need to trust him. And maybe for some of you, you would say, I, I do feel called to trust God with 10%. Maybe you would say, I don't have the faith for that, Brian. Trust God with 3%. Trust God with 1%. And, and listen, there's a lot of different scenarios and situations here. Sometimes maybe there are people that you are a contract worker, and so you don't have a regular salary. That takes extra trusted faith. Whatever situation that you're in, I want to encourage you to trust God, to put your faith in him. And then this is the last verse. This is really important for you to see. Philippians 4.17, Paul is writing to a church, but I believe that what he is saying is reflective of what I am saying. He says, I don't say this because I want a gift from you. So I want you to realize this. I'm not talking to you and I'm not communicating this to you because I need something from you. He's saying, rather, I want you to receive a reward for your kindness. So there are rewards that come when we are generous with our money. Some of the rewards are treasure in heaven. We will not experience them until we get there, but we will receive even eternal or earthly rewards. I believe in this principle, you can't outgive God. Yeah. But if you're here and you feel like I am coercing you, I don't want you to give because you feel manipulated. I don't want you to give out of an angry heart. Now listen, if you're going to give somewhere out of an angry heart, we got boxes in the back. You may as well do it here, okay? <laughs> but I don't want you to feel manipulated, but I want you to do it out of obedience because you know the reward that's coming. All right, let's keep going. We got one more thing to learn about. Look with me at verse 7. It says, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please the flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. And whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have the opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those who belong to the family of believers. Now, I'm going to be quick with this. This is our last 
culture statement. But the last thing we're going to learn is that the gospel creates a culture of endurance. Paul makes a promise here. He says, if you sow, you will reap. Whatever you sow, you will reap. Now, I believe that there may be some people here today, and you walked in here discouraged. You walked in here trying to do the right thing, but weary. You walked in here feeling like you've been doing the right thing and nothing good is happening. You feel like you're hitting a dead end. And what Paul says is, you will reap what you sow. Now notice, you always reap later than you sow. You have to wait. There is a patience aspect. There's a perseverance aspect. But Paul is saying, do not grow weary. Verse 9, let us not become weary, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest. If there are people in here who are thinking about giving up, don't give up. I've said this in both services. I don't think it's necessarily official spiritual math, but I really believe that like 75% of our Christian walk is just not quitting. It's just showing up day after day. There's going to be some breakthrough moments, but a lot of us is just showing up obediently every day. Eugene Peterson, who wrote the message translation of the Bible, he called discipleship a long obedience in the same direction. Let's not grow weary. Let's endure. Okay, this is the conclusion of Galatians, verse 11. Paul says, see what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. Probably he was uh, communicating out loud the entire book of Galatians and someone was operating as a scribe writing it for him. Now he takes the pen and he is saying, Galatians, I'm writing this conclusion myself. This is personal. Verse 12, he says, those who want to impress people by means of the flesh are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Not even those who are circumcised keep the law, yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your circumcision in the flesh. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision mean anything. What counts is the new creation. Now, now this last section, Paul is really recapping a lot of the themes that we talked about throughout Galatians. And so he really is just doing a, a summary. He's telling us what he told us. That's what your English teacher said. Tell me what you're supposed to tell me, then tell me what you told us in the concluding paragraph. That's what he's doing. Verse 16, peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, to the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble. For I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you, your spirit, brothers and sisters. Amen. Now as we close, Paul in this last section gave us one final time a, a, a message and a presentation of the gospel. He said you cannot get to God based on your own good works. The only way to get to God it is by the fact that Jesus died on the cross for you to forgive you and to invite you into the kingdom. And as we close, that's how I want to leave us. Over the past couple of weeks, I've had a couple conversations with people, and I could tell that God was working in their lives. And I could tell they wanted to begin a relationship with God. 
But several people told me this. They said, Brian, I want to start a relationship with God. I know I should, but I have to get myself together first. I have to figure some things out first. Somebody told me, if I go to God, I know I'm going to fail again, and so i got to make sure I'm not going to fail before I go to God. And what I want to tell you is maybe you feel that way. Maybe you think, I'm ready to start a relationship with God, but, but, but i got to make sure that I'm not going to mess up first. And I need you to understand that there's nothing that you and I can do to, to do enough good works to make it to God. We can't get ourselves together enough. The gospel starts with us saying, I need help. It starts with us saying, I need a savior. And when we say, I need a savior, that's when life starts to change. An individual called me uh, in the past month or so. And the first time that I picked up the phone, I talked to them and we started talking. And then the conversation turned and they said, Brian, I need help. I need help. And the moment that they said that, I knew God was going to move in their life. Because they approached it with a position of humility. God opposes the proud and he gives grace to the humble. The goal of our faith is dependence on God. If, we, if our goal is dependence, then us being weak is actually an advantage. And so I want to encourage you, if you're here and you need to begin a relationship with Jesus, don't try and figure it out apart from Jesus. Just tell him, I need help. And when you tell him, he will bring help. All right, let's pray. God, we thank you for the fact that the gospel creates culture. We thank you for the fact that you are doing a special work in our community. And God, I do pray that if there are people here who need to operate with grace, that they would operate with grace. I pray that if there are people here that would say, I want to join the team or I need to open up about a weakness, that they would do that. I pray that if there are people here who need to be generous, that they would do it. But, but God, most importantly, what I want to say is this. I pray that if there are people here who are moving, or that you're moving and that they need to get saved, I pray that right now that you would do a work. And if you're here and you need to begin a relationship with Christ, if you're here and you would say, um, I, I've walked away from God or I never had a relationship with God, today is your day. Jesus died on the cross so you could enter into a relationship with God. So Christians all over this room, we're praying, but if there are people who need to begin this relationship, what I want you to do is I want you to pray in your heart to God. Just repeat a simple prayer that I'm gonna say. It's not magic words, but it's us putting our trust in God. Just say, dear God, I need you. I need a savior. I need someone to lead my life. Please forgive me of my sins. Thank you for dying on the cross to forgive me to bring me into new life. Help me to follow you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Now, if you're here and you prayed that prayer, the Bible says that when we put our faith in Christ, that we are a new creation. And so trust and believe that Jesus has made you one of his children. Now, right now, we are going to take communion. And communion is a moment for all of us where we 
look at our hearts and look at ourselves. And we ask, is there any sin, anything that is separating me and God? And if there is, the Bible says if we confess our sins, he is faithful to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So right now the band's going to lead us for just a moment. And I want to encourage you in your heart, just lay anything down before God that is in between you and him so that you can have the freedom to take communion. All right, let's stand together. And let's spend some time singing and let's spend some time examining our hearts. So as you walked in, you were given a cup. If you're a follower of Jesus, uh, you're welcome to partake of this, whether or not uh, you call Calvary your home church. If you don't follow Jesus, I would encourage you, just let this pass you by. This is uh, not for you. But you can open up the wrapper with the bread. The Apostle Paul says that Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread. And when he had broken it, he gave thanks. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In communion, we remember that Jesus' body was beaten, tortured, broken, so that our sins could be forgiven and so that we could have life. And so in communion, we remember and we thank God. So let's thank God. God, we're so grateful to you for the sacrifice of Jesus. We thank you for the fact that you allowed him to die so that we could live. Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice for us. Thank you that in Hebrews it says, for the joy set before you, you endured the cross, despising its shame. And now we eat this bread and we remember what you have done for us. Let's eat together.
you can open up the juice. And it says in scripture that after supper, Jesus took the cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The new covenant says that God has saved us, not because of what we have done, but because of his faithfulness and his grace. And it says that we can know and be confident that he is committed to us. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus, Philippians 1.6. And when we drink this, we remember his faithfulness to us. So Jesus, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you that you walk with us in every moment. And we believe that we are not followers of you because of how great we are, but because of how great you are. And we are committed to walking every day, becoming more like you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's drink together. Paul said that as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until his coming. So at communion, we look back to what he has done and we look forward to what he will do. Now, as we close, just a couple of things. If you need prayer for anything at all, we're gonna have a prayer team down front and I wanna invite you to come down and receive prayer. Uh, we are gonna have our tithes and offering boxes in the back, so feel free to give. You can also give online. If you are new, uh, we have an awesome team out in the commons called New to Calvary. We wanna encourage you to go out there, get to know some stuff about our church. If you're new, we don't talk about tithing every week, I promise. Well, one more thing I wanna let you know about, because I did talk a little bit about tithing today. But uh, Pastor Dave, the very first week of the year, January 1st, uh, he gave a great message called Managing God's Money. It's not just about tithing. It really is about all of our finances. God cares about 100% of our finances, and he wants us to flourish in our finances. And so uh, if you need a resource to kind of learn a little bit more about that, a lot of people may have missed it due to the fact that it was the first service of the year. I missed it, and I had to go back and uh, listen. So I just want to encourage you. You can search for Managing God's Money. Excellent, excellent teaching if you need additional resource. Guys, we love you. Invite some people to Easter. Tell people that God loves them and invite them to come experience the life change. We'll love you and we'll see you next week.